or they take it off the internet. Hello, Ticketmaster, you know, Mm -hmm. versus Taylor Swift fans. Ticketmaster finally being taken to a congressional hearing when many Mm -hmm. other fandoms have spent a long time pointing to the problems, right? I spent so much effort talking about antitrust issues on the internet, and then, like, Taylor Swift fans got Ticketmaster to, like, fucking congressional hearings. Hell yeah. Like, what am I doing? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Can't Let It Go, a deep dive into the things that are stuck in our heads. My name is Matt. And I use he, him pronouns. Hey, I'm AC. I use they, them pronouns. This is the second time we're trying this. Trying to feel it out. Last time we did this, we talked about X-Men. X-Men. And uh, AC, you asked me last time uh, what I thought you should try out your first full episode on. And I remembered that when we were originally talking about the show, you were reading this book by Caitlin Tiffany. I see it written here. I'm not sure. Is this the title, How Fangirls Created the Internet? That's the subtitle. That's the subtitle. Oh, okay. That's the part that I want to focus about. But this book was is called Everything I Need, I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It by Caitlin Tiffany. And you had shared with me at the time that it had some parallels to some of the fan communities that we were in. Um, and I wanted it. to hear more about it. <laughs> so with that, I'll pass it off to you to uh, tell me about this book that you read. Amazing. Okay. So... Content note for our listeners at home to start us off here. In this recording, it is inevitable we are going to talk about Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. It is a cruel but inevitable fact about uh, the course of my life, my understanding of fandom when Matt and I talk about fandom because it's the fandom that connected us Mm -hmm. and uh, made our friendship exist. Um. And if you want to listen to a conversation, so what this won't be, I'll start here. What this won't be is us rehashing our Harry Potter fandom and why neither of us really identify as fans. If you want to listen to that kind of conversation, you can check out a video on Matt's YouTube channel um, about Hogwarts Legacy, where we had a great conversation just about two years ago. Um, about our feelings about Harry Potter. Yeah, I'll make sure to link that wherever we post this. Yeah, the overall, you know, trajectory of J.K. Rowling exposing herself as a turf and also recontextualizing the um, books and the tropes themselves um, as an adult, revisiting those stories rather than as a young person. So... Now that that's out of the way, I think it's important to mention that Caitlin Tiffany says at the front of this book that this book is not about One Direction. And that is both true and untrue. (laughs) Caitlin very much is trying, is, 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 has a very unique and super important perspective on fandom and yes, how fangirls shaped the internet. But she also does so through the lens of really talking in depth about her personal relationship to fandom through the One Direction fandom. And so I thought a good place to start when talking about fandom is to ask you, Matt, what part of what fandoms were you part of in your youth? And did they have online components? Um, So 
I was just talking about this one. I, I say I'm just talking about this one. I've been like on a weird nostalgia trip about this one. I think one of the first online fandoms that I was ever a part of um, was Bionicle. Amazing. Um, say more about Bionicle. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Bionicle came out at the exact right moment for me, you know, the eight, nine-year-old boy, you know, in, you know, the nineties and in early two thousands, I guess. Um, and, uh, there was a, I'm never going to remember the name of this website. There was a, um, a forum for Bionicle fans. And, um, I don't know if you know this about me. I was really into like, um, like pixel art for a little bit. Specifically people would make these Bionicle like, uh, like pixel art, uh, like sheets that you could put together and like make scenes out of. And I learned from that how to like do my own original pixel art drawings. Um, uh, I would look back at that and like, you know, later in life and be like, oh, that was like a pattern that I was developing of getting really deeply into something and then dropping it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but Specifically, Bion- I have I have a ton probably of Bionicle pixel art on like a random <laughs> hard drive at my dad's house or Incredible. something. Incredible. Incredible. Um, and then I think the next one was the one that I think you know more about, which was like the Teen Titans fan fiction community mm-hmm. um, that I was really into in like my early high school years. And we're talking like message boards, AOL chat rooms. Yeah. And, and also like, you know, taking it, to school with the few friends that I had that sure. were into it as well. Right. right. But like, we were all like in computer class or whatever, like over on the world's finest, uh, uh fan fiction forum at, uh, tune zone. Um, <laughs> I will not tell you my username. <laughs> okay. So I think like some important things to add for context here, it, dear listener is that Matt and I are both 33 years old or about to be 33 <laughs> years old. We grew up at a time where not every kid had a computer in their household. There was not a cell phone glued to my hand. Um, the very first fan website that I remember surfing, um, I had quite a revelation about today. So I'm going to hold off before I uh, huh? uh, <laughs> reveal to you uh, uh, what I discovered. Um, but I think it's so interesting. So when you say you were a part of this fandom, can you say a little more like, so you were actively posting on a message board, you were checking a message board like a couple days a week, you had dedicated friends, or was this something where you were just like going online and like reading fan fiction and talking to your friends about it at school? I think all of the above, actually. I was yeah. I was actively participating on a regular basis, even in that Bionicle forum that I like technically maybe legally shouldn't have been on, um, <laughs> you know, but like I was sure. an active participant there. And like it like those interactions like informed the way that I like participate as a human online in like the 2010s and 2020s as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So to get ready for today, I went back to what I remember as like. The first fan website that I like regularly checked for updates. And it was not a forum board website. I wasn't really allowed on forum board websites. So I was, you know, a a classic lurker in those spaces because I couldn't have an account that could get found out. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So the website that I remember the most is, do you remember the very secret diaries? No, I don't. (laughs) Okay. So the very secret diaries was a short form fan fiction website that was the very secret diaries of many different characters of the Lord of the Rings. Oh. Perhaps most famously, they're Legolas. Um, the, the, anyway, there's there's different ones. It's linked. I love this for you. I'm just our... going to stop and say that this is incredible. <laughs> okay, but Matt, the plot thickens. So today, I went to open the very secret diary of Legolas, son of Weenus, um, and... Do you know who is the author of the Very Secret Diaries? I want I you to guess. I want you to guess. I get... Is it Caitlin Tiffany? It's Cassandra Clare. Oh my God. <laughs> and so for me, a person who has never been a Cassandra Clare reader, has never, even when Cassandra Clare was only writing and publishing like on an archive of her own um, or live journal or wherever. I was never, I never in a million years would have said to you, my favorite piece of fan fiction, the most important artifact of the internet from when I was 12 years old was written by Cassandra Clare. I would have had no idea. Um, but you know, I I was rereading it, and the thing that struck me so deeply is that, to your point, this the very secret diaries absolutely re like wired hardwired a very specific mm. part of my brain because when I think about my sense of humor, the things that I find funny, and I go back and I read this, I'm like, wow, like. Okay, here is an entry from the very secret diary of Legolas. Day 12. Asked Gandalf for the Balrog's number. Gandalf said I couldn't call him. I told him not to be jealous and possessive. He said he wasn't. It was just that he killed the Balrog last week. Note to self, (laughs) never date Gandalf. (laughs) And like... (laughs) If... Listener, you don't know me, but if you did know me, you might say, wow, that sounds exactly like AC's sense of humor, right? Like this is a thing that has carried over um, in the like sense that I am a fan of the Lord of the Rings, but I am someone who has always struggled with the concept of fandom. And honestly, that's really what I want to talk about today, because I think the thing that came up for me over and over again in rereading this book to prepare for today, and even in my initial read, is that I felt so disconnected hmm. from what Caitlin talks about as this like deeply motivating factor, this idea of loving something so deeply that it moves you to do wild, perhaps seemingly out of character things. I'm going to, you know, try not to read you too much of this because as I started to highlight, um, (laughs) it was like just highlighting everything. Um, But I think a good quote to start with and then um, to move us, we'll, we'll move forward in the conversation um, is from chapter 10 
There is no such thing as fan internet because fan internet is the internet. We don't see these things happening until they've happened. Now, every time a pop star or a real housewife or a woman politician makes a quip, it winds up the subject of homemade merch and reaction gifts. When a man is seen doing something endearing, eating flaming hot Cheetos with chopsticks, leading the country of Canada with some amount of competence, he becomes the internet's boyfriend for a season. When a girl does something interesting on TikTok, a dance, a funny face, a well-executed bit about how golf courses are causing the destruction of the planet, dozens of Instagram accounts dedicated to her pop up overnight. We love to fan so much, we'll take nobodies and make them into stars just because they film themselves skateboarding, drinking cranberry juice, and listening to Fleetwood Mac, or because they yodeled for a few minutes in a Walmart. We trot out a new icon every week, adulating them until they do something worthy of a fall or until we forget. We stand everything now, from Supreme Court justices to new flavors of sparkling water. I personally have recently stand a local news blog, a stranger in the comments of a YouTube video, my own sister, a friend's puppy, and a bottle of skin contact wine. And I think that that is just what a orienting piece of writing. I mean, do you, so I will ask this, given how you kind of clash with uh, some of the uh, talk about like obsession and loving something so much, does that page sort of resonate with you and your experience of the current internet? Or is that more related to your like not resonating? I think this resonates with me so deeply. And I think that the follow-up parts are the parts that I struggle with more. Mm. But like, I think nothing breaks my heart more than like, uh, I, I last week saw a TikTok of Elise Myers having to explain to her audience that the reason that she didn't post a piece of art that someone had sent her, you know, all of the reasons why she hadn't done this thing. Um, and explaining why everyone tagging her into this thing wouldn't change her behavior, and setting boundaries with people. Um, and I think there are some parts of this book that that really do illustrate, right? Like the point of the people that we stand, the things that we are fans of, the people specifically, right? Mm -hmm. That we are fans of, the things that we are fans of were created by people, mm -hmm. human beings who are ultimately fallible, right? And like human beings who are real and have feelings, right? I think it breaks my heart every time to see someone like Elise, who was a regular person until a few viral TikToks, right? Now be expected to be able to perfectly hold up this platform and deal with celebrity and fame. And it is something that we have seen. It feels so cyclical at this point. And mm -hmm. like, I think that's part of why it feels a little bit more heartbreaking each time is because certainly at least Myers isn't the first person to have to do that. Yeah. It's something I think a lot of just like being a person who makes things on the internet period and like thinking about what are my goals for this? Right. Yeah. I said at the beginning of 2022 that I wanted to um, make money, right? Not a stupid amount of money, but enough money to, to live. Right. And, um, I think about like what that takes and like what level of audience that takes. And like, um, one of the reasons I don't say, I mean, beyond some other just like personal, you know, beliefs. Um, uh, but one of the reasons I don't say be stupid rich from the internet, right. Is 
like I don't want that pressure. I'm mm-hmm. just a dude talking about his feelings on the internet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it, it is fundamental to me, like at this tiny, small stage of a person who, you know, is still at risk of having his YouTube channel demonetized, you mm-hmm. know? Um, like I, I am already thinking about, okay, but how big can this audience realistically get before it starts affecting me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, in my professional life, I run a brand account with millions of followers and the kinds of strategic choices that we make are just that they're strategic, right? I have never wanted to participate in the internet in a way where I feel like I am doing that same kind of strategic thinking for myself. And yet I constantly feel myself falling um, prey to that kind of pressure and that kind of expectation. I think to move us forward in this conversation that I'm hoping for us to have, I want to do a little bit of like the go into a little bit of the archaeology that this book does mm-hmm. that I found shocking, stunning, fabulous, and so fascinating, which is like, okay, tale as old as time. Fandom is a tale as old as time. There are fans of writers in the 1800s, in the 1700s, right? Mona Lisa is... You know, was was a fangirl, maybe. I don't feel like that that's a good one to for sure say <laughs> confidently, like someone who was maybe in a relationship with a painter who then got painted was a fangirl, right? Mm-hmm. But certainly there is nothing new about fandom and certainly nothing in the year 2023 that is new about fandom. If I were, if you were to guess again, <laughs> what fandom shaped the early internet do you have a guess of like what fandom it would be my brain immediately goes to star trek just because i think of star trek fan fiction and the beginning of slash fiction but uh, beyond that i don't have any guesses conventions right okay right i absolutely i think that if you had asked me this question i would have been like at star trek hands down i on the Mm -hmm. same wavelength turns out um Sure, Star Trek has a big part of it. Turns out um, one of the first, like, documented proto-list serves is created, uh, it's, it's called Community Memory, created by a Stanford University professor named Paul Martin in 1973, or sorry, 1970, in early 1975. It was a semi-public mailing list on the ARPANET, for fans mm-hmm. of the Grateful Dead. Of course it fucking was. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fish fans at this point. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, like, and it's so interesting because like the Grateful Dead is a fandom that my dad is for sure a part of, right? Yeah. But like that this, you know, Stanford professor used the US Department of Defense's experimental network uh, in communication protocols that would eventually lead to the invention of the internet to talk to his friends in his lab about the Grateful Dead and how much they all liked the Grateful Dead is remarkable. And also I feel is 
such an interesting note when the concept, the cultural, general cultural conception of like what a fan is, is a fan girl, right? A screaming fan girl. Fan I of literally the was thinking this exact thing as you were talking. I was like, it is wild to me that it's this like man in the seventies talking about a very dad band. When we think of like fandom as like fundamentally feminine. Yes. And perhaps most interesting was that a function of the internet for the first like 10, 15 years that these message boards existed is that deadheads were paying large amounts of money to have access to the internet through various different systems to be able to participate in these kinds of fan boards with people, these proto fan boards. What Caitlin writes here is, right, fans became almost as a rule the first to adopt new platforms and to invent new features of the internet, a habit molded by the fact that they were the people with the most obvious incentive to do so, right? So these people care about a thing, they care about connecting with other people who care about this thing, I mean, the Grateful Dead conference on one of the early internet platforms was by far, according to a researcher, the largest single source of income for the enterprise. Are you kidding me? At the time, individual internet users had to pay a la carte for the hours they spent online. And being a member of the well, if you used it financially, could run up a bill of hundreds of dollars a month. In And like hundreds of dollars a month in... The 1970s and 80s is like right, so we're talking over a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, just <laughs> to chat online to your friends about stuff. Honestly, I think that it speaks to something that is in that early quote, right? This idea that the the internet is the fan internet; they're not separable. Um, and I think too, right? The first websites that you and I interacted with are deeply connected to the things that we like. Even now on Instagram, sure, you follow your friends, but you also might follow a show that you like or a singer in a band that you like, right? It's a key part of the experience. Now, I will say something that this book touched on in terms of internet history that I deeply miss as a part of it is like the really funny names for these message boards and websites for like fans or like for the fan clubs, right? Like um, Buffyology, the academic study of Buffy, um, Grown Up Hanson Fans Unite, Naked Truth, a site dedicated to an imagined relationship between CSI investigator characters, Catherine Willows and Sarah Siddle. Like... (laughs) Wow. <laughs> Jen's Britney Spears page, Jerry's Britney Spears page, Matt's Britney Spears page, Britney People, Britney Space, like anything out there you could find an RSS news bulletin, a shitty weird podcast, right? Which some of them became very famous, very well-to-do podcasts, right? Like As the internet evolved, as social networks became a thing, I mean, I think of, do you remember when pages just like didn't exist on Facebook and people would create Facebook accounts for Mm -hmm. characters? Oh, you're friends with Draco Malfoy on Facebook. How Mm -hmm. are you friends with Draco Malfoy? Which actually. I mean, it's like that happens on Twitter too, right? Twitter. Twitter. uh, Like, like the, I I remember like 
this is not an early instance, but it's one of the first that I interacted with. Uh, the TV show, The Newsroom, they all like people were creating fan accounts for the characters on that, and I definitely followed them because I was unfortunately very into that. Oh show. God, right? What what a show and what an artifact of that time. I think that something interesting is right. Like now, there are also accounts that are official accounts run by the brands, mm-hmm. right? One of the other interesting things that I that I find so fascinating about the presence of fandom and that the book touches on a number of times is like fandom is profitable, right? It is valuable to companies. It is valuable to artists. It is literally the currency that makes some makes or breaks someone's success in today's world, and not just in today's world, always, right? Uh, a band gets a local a following at the local joint that they play at every week. And that means they can get a better gig because they can show that they've been selling out this venue right on and on. And so the things, the way that this can grow and, and, and get out of control, I think on the internet, right. We start to see what happens when it's not just about physically gathering in a space as fans, but, the interconnectedness, right, starts to mean that you can meet someone mm-hmm. hundreds of miles away. You could date someone in, I don't know, Hawaii, and maybe you've never met them <laughs> in real life. And then you never did meet them in real life. But you could date them very seriously for several months over the internet, right? Um, and that's someone, uh, that's a story about me and how I met someone <laughs> in the Nerdfighter community, uh, the the Green Brothers fan community, mm-hmm and fall in love i want to like pause really quick and just remind you of the conversation that we had um when you were here in tulsa about the green uh, green brothers content i think we were talking about i was talking about julian noons right? mm-hmm. i'm saying like somehow she has followed me like as I aged and like made music that continued to appeal yeah. to me. And you immediately were like, that's how I feel about the Hank Green and John Green. Like, that is how I feel about I had, Hank Green specifically, I, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, it's it's truly wild. And I think that like, th- if we had wanted to, you and I could have had this entire conversation through like the vehicle of the Green Brothers and how John and Hank Green have built community, built fandom and also struggled with so many of these pitfalls that we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we won't even, I feel like we can't even scratch the surface of John Green's Tumblr, why John Green yeah. left Tumblr um, <laughs> in this conversation. But listener, if you don't know why John Green left Tumblr, do go look it up. It is very funny. He's recently said stuff about this, by the way. Did yes, you know that? Yes. Because okay. he's rejoined <laughs> Tumblr. Um, yeah. And yes, I think that this is we're we're at a moment where we can make the jump to talk about this next part, which I expect is going to be the most sentimental part of this conversation. But I want to talk about fandom and the sense of belonging. Hmm. Because one of the things that I said about, that I struggle with this book, right, is I struggle to remember that feeling of even the things where I have been part of the fandom. So here is the moment where we'll talk about Harry Potter, 
friend, if you don't want to listen to us talk about Harry Potter or Harry Potter adjacent things. I'm going to be putting chapters in these whenever we release them. So you, if you have a <laughs> podcast app that supports chapters, you can just skip, skip right ahead. Along. And uh, I hear and respect that. No hard feelings. Um, you know, the Harry Potter fandom is, I think, the fandom that I am like, have had the most interactions with that is the most longstanding, the only fandom for which I have ever been to any sort of convention or multiple events for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this started, like, right young. Did you go to the the book releases, the midnight book releases? And It was complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, my first book release was uh the stage play as a full adult who had kind of given up on harry potter um but uh because i was not allowed that's right i lived between two homes and one of the homes was fully supportive of whatever i wanted to do the other was i was not allowed to read or interact with harry potter or like watch rugrats that was a big one um (laughs) sure uh why not like stuff like that and so harry potter was like a Half of my year was often like a secret indulgence. Ah, yes. Okay. So I think, you know, we we mentioned casually last episode that Matt and I met through the intranet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, the Ethernet connection at our college. But we met because of Harry Potter and, and music about Harry Potter specifically, right? So fan created music that was supposed to be in world music it was Mm -hmm. like if you're not familiar with wizard rock you can look up the time article about what what is wizard rock (laughs) um and then come back most of the people in that article are going to be people that we know and like have friendships with (laughs) yeah and i think that it's so interesting because when i think about my interactions with the fan community and fans so many of those interactions are so fraught for any number of reasons and so i I just Mm -hmm. what is your memory of the experiences around being in that fan community or is there another fan community that you're like this this is where i found belonging or i found my people right yeah, I think Wizard Rock is like the one for me, and yeah. specifically Wizard Rock, not even just Harry Potter, right? I always, I kind of felt a little distant from certain aspects of the Harry Potter fan community, but yeah. um, Wizard Rock was it, I think, very often longingly of like <laughs> the the summer that you and I ran around, you know, three different states going to concerts and stuff. Um, and like, that was the community, I think, that I most strongly felt connected to, um, you know, the people that we would see at, at various shows. That was when I met Elisa, who's a good friend of ours, you know, who still is an important uh, person in my life. Um, you know, that, but I mean, at the same time, like not even the JK Rowling of it all, right? Like that's a complicated memory to have, right? Um, because of the things that happened just within that community, the people who, you, you get famous within a fan community and then the fame that you might experience like in the open internet, in the, in the mainstream um, can do all of the same things to you. And that absolutely happened yeah. in that community. Um, yeah. I and that's it. the stuff that immediately comes to mind for me. Yeah. 
I had originally actually intended for this to maybe be sort of a separate section, but the things are so connected that yeah. I yeah. don't feel right. Like uh, I had titled this, this other section, right? Seriously unserious, the, the consequences of fandom and like what happens when the fandom breaks up, right? And yeah. I think it's so interesting being some a fan of something like Harry Potter. I imagine it is somewhat akin to being a fan of something like One Direction, right? It's mm-hmm. something that everyone knows about. It's something that many people really like. It's something that many people like enough to go to a concert or a amusement park or or even like a midnight screening, right? But mm-hmm. it's not something that everyone who is at that midnight screening is at the same level of fan that you are, right? Some right. people are just along for the ride. And sometimes it's hard for me to sort out like, was I feeling so lost and like I couldn't connect with people in this community where I expect to find belonging because I wasn't a true fan, because I didn't like this thing in the same way that everyone else around me seemed to like it, which was uncritically and unironically? Um, Mm -hmm. Or was it more about me and what was going on for me in my own life, right? And the answer is almost certainly like a 70-30 split. Like it's a little mm-hmm. bit of column A and a lot of column B. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and Caitlin talks about this in her book when she talks about actually Elon Musk and Grimes when they started to date, how Twitter reacted to like being very disappointed in Grimes, right? Mm-hmm. Because of this constructed parasocial relationship. And so here is the moment where I want to ask you, to what degree do you feel like, or do you feel like it's true? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like when I think about why making friendships in the Harry Potter community felt so hard is because it feels connected to this idea of these parasocial relationships, right? The the thing that was supposed to connect me to this person was that we both liked this same piece of media. Mm-hmm. And yet I so often found myself in conversations where people were celebrating parts of this media that I found alarming or parts of this media that I found distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never really felt like I knew how to sort through those feelings. Is that... I don't know. Is that anything? <laughs> I know the thing you're talking about. I don't think it's the thing that I like think about when I think on the fandom. Um, I, I know the feeling I think of specifically. Um, I went to LeakyCon 2011 in Orlando when the last movie was coming out. Mm-hmm. And um, I sat down at the movie um, and there were these fans in front of us. So I just kind of got to talking with them. Right. Um, to be clear, I am also a fan. I'm like at an early showing of this movie before it's coming out. I've like paid extra at money a to conference, be there. That at a is. conference of like about Harry Potter. Yeah. So like I am fully like in it. Um, but they're talking about stuff and, um, you know, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I'm like, man, I hope that like we're not going to like scream through this whole movie. Like I want to watch the movie, you know, I don't need. And what I yeah. said at the time was like, I don't need these like star kid fans, which was like oh, a no. subset of the community. Um, <laughs> the subculture like, ruining, of the subculture. Yeah. Like ruining, ruining this movie. And they were like, 
oh, we're deeply the people that are going to scream. We're deeply Starkid fans. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And just like, now I know what experience I'm going to have seeing this movie, you know? But that's the disconnectedness that I think I felt was sometimes it was hard to relate to people because was I deeply a fan? Yes. But the ways that we wanted to engage with that fandom, very different, right? Just like extremely, extremely different. Um, like I said, we got into it because of Wizard Rock. And to me, the thing that was interesting about Wizard Rock was like the same thing that's interesting about fan fiction. It's fan storytelling, yeah. right? That's not the same as, oh my God, there's an actor here and I want to scream and cry, right? And yeah. like, those are two different ways to do fandom that I'm I'm not trying to judge, but it wasn't for me. Yeah. I think too, uh, the, the so overwhelmed by like, want to scream and cry thing, you know, Mm -hmm. as an adult, I know now that the reason that I can't ever, uh, I don't know (laughs) what having that kind of reaction would be like is, you know, because I am autistic and I don't experience (laughs) those big feelings. This like collective, like neurodivergency that we have like unlocked Mm -hmm. with each other in adulthood is like, it's like it's really perfection and explains a lot of the ways that we were friends yeah like when we met each other 100 percent. but I also like I think I was talking to my therapist a while ago about like a conversation where I had felt so alien from folks where the like conversation starter in a group of people that I mostly didn't know was like who's your celebrity crush and I couldn't one think of like an answer to just like say something and get out of it because what my brain was stuck on and what I wound up saying out loud was like, well, I don't believe in the concept of celebrity. Like I actually don't have, I, it's not possible for me to form a crush via a parasocial relationship because it's not someone that I know. And that's not how attraction functions for me. And that was like too much information in that scenario. And now I can just like, remember that I should just say (laughs) (laughs) sure. Or like Christine Baranski or Allison Janney or, or, or Kate Blanchett, any older hot lady like would have worked well in that situation. And everyone would have been like, great. You know, just like pick an old hot lesbian and you're there. Correct. Yes. Um, (laughs) But like the, the most interesting thing in, in, in Caitlin's book is, that she talks about, and I think this is also part of why the celebrity crush or the fandom piece is hard for me, right? Is like, she specifically, because she's talking about the One Direction fandom, talks a lot about music and music celebrities, right? And talks um, about how pop music has never been apolitical, truly, right? Um, But that in the new version of our world where we are so deeply interconnected we develop these like expectations that the celebrities that we like the things that we are fans of will share our values right and will reflect our values and in many ways right that's why the Harry Potter fandom went through a breakup right in more ways than one and at more times than one right if we think about and talk about the wizard rock community and why the wizard rock community had its first breakup, it was because member prominent members of the community 
behaved in ways that didn't meet the values of the community, right? And that resulted in a fracturing, a conversation, tension, people choosing to leave the community, people choosing to take steps back and return to it, right? Yeah, for sure. That was the first time where I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to identify to other people, that I'm a Harry Potter fan. Yeah, when I tell people how big of a Harry Potter fan I am, I'm like, you don't understand. Like, my breakup with this community started several years before we were talking about J.K. Rowling. My reevaluation of this text started before she had a Twitter account. Yeah. Right? And that wasn't because I'm some smart person and I'm like some asshole trying to show you how intelligent I am. It's because I had an experience in the fandom that, like, led me to reevaluate those things. Right? Because we were... We were there experiencing, listening to, often writing music from the perspectives of these characters. And that forces you, right, to think about who are these people, what are their motivations, and, like, how does the Hermione in my head respond, (laughs) right, to the existence of, you know, slavery in the, you know, in the text of Harry Potter that is for real there, right, Um, versus, like, how that actually shows up in that text and how people respond to that and like sort of for lack of a better word, mainstream fandom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that there are parts of the breakdown of that fan community that to me felt like, Oh yes, this is why I shouldn't be a part of something like this. Right. Because it felt, it just, and and this is like, maybe there is a bigger conversation about like culture and what does it mean to be in American culture, right? Like groups of people mm-hmm. get together and then these things happen. And then and like, I, we keep being vague, right? Like these things, right? Prominent male members of the prominent men in the community, right, were accused of abusing their power, right? And and in various mm-hmm. different ways, abusing their power, abusing their status, abusing their fame. And that in many ways is its own tale as old as time, right? Right. Like in in some cases, um that that looked like um manipulation of women, right? In other cases, it uh unfortunately uh looked like potential manipulation of underage girls. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, that, that story played out. And, and what I will say that I'm I'm glad about that community is like, those people are not a part of that community anymore. And the version of that community that exists these days is um, kind of rebuilt from the ground up. Yeah. I think too, like, I think about when, so we did go to LeakyCon in in 2018. Um, And I think about being there and like, being 28 and and being in that space and being somewhere that for me, it was something I'd always wanted to go and do. Um, and something that I was like, finally, this, I get to be part of this like quintessential mm-hmm. fan experience of like going to a large scale event with thousands of other people who also like this thing. And like, it wasn't not fun, right? Like I was there with you. I was there with some of our other best friends who happened to both mm-hmm. be named Emily. <laughs> um, right. Like the, there were pieces of it that I like deeply, deeply cherish. And I also was just like, I don't know that this would have been as fun as it was, what might have, as I imagined that it would have been when I was 21 or 22. And I also 
certainly when I was 21 or 22 and longing after going to these events, seeing the people who were going to them were the age that I was when I got to go. So I think it's just something that is so interesting about the the ways that the biggest challenges of of our like culture writ large find themselves reflected in subcultures and small communities, right? And I think too about fandom as a whole, right? And and I <laughs> want to bring us to the the part of the conversation that is about the idea of stan culture, right? Mm. I think of why that moment where our community around Wizard Rock had its breakdown as like tenable or survivable or like not altogether as devastating for me as I think it could have been, despite not being a person who was directly affected by anything that was happening. Some to do with like, there are zero things that I am a stan of, right? The the idea of um, standing something isn't something that sits well with me, as I just said, don't really believe in the concept of celebrity. And to stand something you do, generally speaking, have to be willing to hold someone up on that kind of pedestal. Do you know the term cupcake? Have you ever heard this term before? Um, I have, since we've been talking, pulled up your notes and read it. And I was like, I don't know what cupcake means. I had never heard cupcake before. Um, but in, in this book, Caitlin says, there is a term for the type of fan who will never criticize their fave never hold them accountable for anything and coddle them forever as if each day is freshly the day they were born. It's cupcake and the Harry Styles fandom has many of them. And I never heard that before. <laughs> I haven't either. I kind of thought that's what, I mean, I know what Stan is an amalgamation of. It's mm-hmm. like, is it stalker fan? Is that what it's supposed to be? I think so. Um, and, but to me, there's like two pieces of that. There is the cupcake piece, which is I'm never going to criticize the thing that I am obsessed with. Right. But there's also the I am willing to take actions that are socially unacceptable mm. to be a fan of this person, mm-hmm. right? Those two things are built into that, you know, portmanteau. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's so interesting, the idea of, of stan culture. And I think to the point about the first quote that I read about how fan culture is internet culture, right? We love to stand. I think I literally said I have no choice but to stand my friend's partner the other day, right? <laughs> um, because he's an icon, honestly. And I I think so much about like how how can we have a conversation, Matt, about fan culture without talking about how fan culture is toxic mm-hmm. and terrible and actually Almost always, anyone who identifies as a fan of something is the worst. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what I will say is the thing you're kind of talking about. um, I was talking to someone the other day um, who has uh, a decent audience, right? Um, And they were kind of sharing to me the difficulties uh, that that can bring, right? Um, And the thing, it, it made me sad, because I consider myself a part of that audience and it would it would be upsetting to me 
if this person decided to stop making the things that they make, Mm -hmm. um, because of, because just because of shitty fans, right? Like, uh, like, like that would suck. And it sucks that I think it seems to be not impossible, but difficult, right. To make things you want to make, right. That's critical. Make things that resonate with people and then not have that, new fandom or audience that you've built like eat itself or sort of eat you eat each other and yeah yeah and eat each other and like that that terrifies me as a person who like constantly has a drive to make things yeah right it's like um I've never been I'll say blessed with the opportunity (laughs) to have that big of an audience right but like I'm stuck in the first half of that. I'm stuck in like I'm making shit that resonates with me and like it seems to not totally resonate with other people. Mm. But like even if I beat that, right? If mm-hmm. I manage to find something that is like both appealing to me and an audience, like does that just like always lead right to a negative end? Yeah. Right? That scares me. Yeah. <laughs> that's just like that's like what is art level scary to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's, like, a, re- a reasonable scary, right? Like, a reasonable thing when pursuing making content on the internet, having been a fan and knowing the way that it can turn out, that that's not, it's not an unfounded question to ask yourself, right? And there, there are literally too many examples to name here of times when fandom has shown the worst sides of itself in ways that have been consequential towards the media. I think about something that is so interesting, (laughs) which is like the idea that fan service is a bad thing, Hmm. right? Like, I I don't know, like a critique of films that I think about. Um, One of my favorite films, right? Critique of any Avengers film is, oh, it was too fan servicey, right? It -hmm. was too, the moment where, you know, they showed Captain America's ass for the 15th time in a close-up shot, or, you know, they let Cap and Bucky share extended eye contact and, you know, touch hands carefully, right? Like, I fucking love that movie, right? But everybody was like, that movie is just all fan service. And like, hell fucking yeah, it was, right? Like, hell yeah, it was made for the fans who want to see those things because it's all a capitalist game, blah, blah, blah. But also because like, the fans are why this thing exists and why is mm. catering to the screaming girl who loves this thing inherently bad, right? So this is really interesting. And I think I now know the topic that I want to talk about next time Ooh. because I have slightly different opinions on this topic. Oh. I agree with I agree with you. And I think a lot of the times that we um, criticize fan service and media is actually like ties directly back to misogyny, et cetera, et cetera. You and I are on the same page, right? Um, one of the things that I struggle with in, um, I'll just say Star Wars. I'm just gonna say, sure, it. we're just um, we're just gonna Star be Wars specifically. Yeah, um, is uh, so much Star Wars content in recent memory has been 
a product of a Disney that knows that fan service is valuable, mm-hmm. right? Um, that is like operating their entire business, right? Around, we don't have to do anything except give you nostalgia. Mm. And that is a different, there's like three kinds of fan service, I think. There's the one you're talking about. There's nostalgia uh, for this, you know, without good storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think has happened a lot is specifically in Star Wars content. And then there's like over-sexualization of women that people call fan service, which I... And that's the thing I'm not talking about. Like, that's a different thing entirely. <laughs> Listener, I am um, cutting my hand through the air in, an, in the motion internationally known as knock it off. We do not like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and also, like, I feel like is a separate topic. But it, what I will say is that I'll let you move on in topics because I want to talk more about that yeah. on, the next, uh, on the next time we record. No, I think that's right. And, like, a lot of Caitlin's book teases out the this idea of, like, the, the criticisms of fandom via the criticism of young women, right? And the driving power that women and girls in general, um, like, and, and I think I would extend her argument, right? Women, girls, and queer people, right, mm-hmm. drove fandom, drove the creation of the internet, drove the expansion of these specific things, right? And I, I think a great place for us to like move into as like the closing, this like idea of something being seriously unserious, right? Like this idea that like, okay, fans are problematic and the things that we like are problematic and they are toxic and we fight and there's infighting and outfighting and fandoms fight with each other. Rihanna stands hate Beyonce stands, right? Like the believers and the one deers are always at odds, mm-hmm. right? And like in ways that I have we haven't even really touched on, right? Like do that in a public facing forum in a way where they shape the narrative of the internet for that day or that week or that month, right? Or they take it off the internet. Hello, Ticketmaster, you know, Mm -hmm. versus Taylor Swift fans. Ticketmaster finally being taken to a congressional hearing when many Mm -hmm. other fandoms have spent a long time pointing to the problems, right? I spent so much effort talking about antitrust issues on the internet. (laughs) And then, like, Taylor Swift fans got Ticketmaster to, like, fucking congressional hearings. Hell yeah. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. Exactly. So, and I, I think that to to move us into this closing, I want to read this piece um, from Caitlin's book that I, I just found so, like, deeply moving. Um, and here she is talking about sort of, like, the history of Beatlemania and the fangirl, and particularly the trope of, like, screaming and the act Mm -hmm. of screaming with joy. Um, She's writing about Barbara Einrenreich's work um, about Beatlemania, uh, quotes Einrenreich, who described speaking to many teenagers, including a 13-year-old girl from a Westchester suburb who seemed not quite awake, like a puppet with someone else pulling the strings. Then she continues and talks about These girls wanted to be, like the Beatles, free. They wanted to go on adventures and provoke feelings. The louder you screamed, the less likely anyone would forget the power of fans. 
Every generation's boy band serves a slightly different purpose. But if there is one unifying characteristic I can see, it's that a boy band opens up space. Infatuation is irrational, but it can be a precursor to introspection. The experience of bodily joy is an invitation to reconsider the conditions that hold you away from it most of the time. Screaming at pop music is not direct action, and screaming does not make a person a revolutionary or even resistant, but what screaming can and does do is punctuate prolonged periods of silence. Damn. Damn, Caitlin. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, feeling a little misty-eyed over here thinking about screaming and fangirls and, like, that bodily physical experience And not to bring up Harry Potter again, but I think about like one of the things that um, was like this deeply embarrassing moment. I can't remember. Did we go see did we go see Deathly Hallows part one together? Yes, we did. Do you remember that I cried for like the last 15 minutes of the movie not without stopping? Oh, yeah. Okay. I do. But I like I, I don't think that's embarrassing at all. That's like what I expect. <laughs> I mean, I I think that what I found embarrassing was that everyone seemed surprised that I started crying at the beginning of a scene that I like knew where the trajectory of the story was going, right? Right. And like it's one of the most harrowing pieces of the story and without like really getting into it, it is emotional and triggering because the book and the movie it is depictions of incarceration of imprisonment of torture of like truly people doing the most that they can for each other to survive in a truly seemingly unsurvivable situation right and it is, it's the turn, it's the fall, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's the moment of the story where our heroes are reunited and you think that they are going to get to do this big good thing. And they do, generally speaking, but there is a consequence and a cost, right? And like, those are the stories that have always moved me. But that experience of like, crying in that theater and crying so uncontrollably over a story that I didn't write or, (laughs) you know, that I followed as part of a piece of fictional media that I engaged with for, at that point, a little over 10 years, right? I have the physical memory of those feelings. And I think that that's like really what Caitlin is touching on here, right? The feeling of joy. And in particular, when we talk about fandom and music, right? music moves our bodies, right? And like connects us to parts of ourselves that we're otherwise asked to set aside. And those are the moments where I think fandom is best. And maybe why you and I fell so in love with a fandom community that is so deeply tied to music, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of like, there's specific songs that I'm not going to mention right now because the people (laughs) that wrote them, but like, like, just like I like I have strong positive physical memories of like jumping up and down in a library in Midwest City, you know, like singing singing along to these like goofy ass songs, uh, like you being next to me. It's funny you reading that quote from Caitlin um, to go back to the last time that we talked mm. um, reminds me of of some of the things that I was saying about joy and queerness um, and 
just like the sort of physical manifestation of, of a sense of freedom, right? Um, that like I was feeling reading a comic book, you know, about mutants mm-hmm. on this living island or whatever. Um, but listening to Caitlin or you read Caitlin's words, um, sort of describing that joy and like what it does for people and specifically the line about sort of reevaluating your place, mm-hmm. you know, in, in certain systems, like that spoke to me directly. Right. Yeah. Um, and is something that I think like my experience of, of fandom has clearly evolved since you and I, you know, we're part yeah. of the wizard arc fandom, but that, that is like the way that it's showing up for me now. Yeah. I think about too, right? Like, my best experiences as a fan or like the things that I gravitate towards, right? They always speak to some sort of like lack in some way of like, I love this thing because it is my dopamine hit, right? Like Carly Rae Jepsen's music turns the key in that little part of my brain that produces dopamine, right? Like in a way that I can't disconnect from. And, you know, the experience for me as a person who like, one of the things that I love, (laughs) that I love that many people do not like is I love, I mean, here, we're here, we're on, we're, you and I are starting a podcast where we're talking to each other about stuff. I love to debate. I love to talk it out. I love to talk it through and to reevaluate. And that fundamentally is something that is essential to being part of a fan space is like being willing to dissect and be like, and disagree and find new meaning through the way that someone tells you about how they experienced a thing. Right. And like that, so much of this book is about, there's a whole chapter on like deep fried one direction memes, which is <laughs> chef's kiss. Like <laughs> that's the reason that Caitlin wrote the book actually. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, uh, but like, I think so fondly of the things and like the shared communication that happens in fan communities. And the thing about it is <laughs> is that I never want to be identified as a fan by someone else, not because of all of the like gendered understandings of what a fan is. If I've taken out my soapbox to stand up and defend Taylor Swift and Cardi B fans once, I'll do it again. Um, (laughs) You know, it is because of the like serious implications that I have seen being parts of a fan community have on like people's health and well-being. You know, Caitlin talks about in the book, like girls who have been admitted to the hospital after shows with basically popcorn lung, right? Where they've screamed for such extended periods of time, their bodies are no longer able to physically weather that. And there is a part of me that uh, like is curious, like, Mm -hmm. Is that when we think about what I what I just read, this idea that like screaming is a punctuation to prolonged periods of silence. It is an act of joy. It is an expression in these moments of releasing everything that we are otherwise holding on to, right? But that that we exist in a world where a, a young person can scream for so long that their body begins to physically collapse, right? Like 
what does that say about how we as a society, right, in this society that we live in, what does it say about the ways that we've cut ourselves off from other experiences of community joy, right? Like, for our listeners, a little bit of background, you know, your boy studied sociology. Um, it's not a mistake that they're talking endlessly about social issues and complex social problems and subcultures. But it is, um, it strikes me as interesting that, um, do you know what collective effervescence is? No. So collective effervescence, it's a concept written by Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology, if you want to call him that. Um, But it is this idea that you experience collective sentiment or emotion when surrounded by other large groups of people. And collective effervescence can happen like a little bit more esoterically than that, right? Like the feeling of being in a certain city, right? Or it can be really specific, like a sports game, right? Mm-hmm. You could, I famously not a sports guy, but I can go to a basketball game and feel really excited in the tension of the moment because there are many, many people around me experiencing that tension mm-hmm. and that tension I can feel, right? Um, at a movie theater, right? Going to a movie, you don't find particularly funny, but everybody else is laughing. And so you chuckle a little bit to yourself, mm-hmm. right? Collective effervescence is Durkheim talks about it in connection with like ritual and religiosity, right? Where collective effervescence happens most frequently in American culture is at church and in sports games and in music venues, right? Mm. In these fan spaces and fan experiences. And I, I think that, there is something there's there's something tasty there about mm-hmm. this space that people have created for themselves where whether or not they themselves are religious they you know may, very well may be but how we have found a way to get ourselves into bigger and bigger moments of these collective experiences that are hopefully in particular with music often oriented around joy and around expression rather than like around scaling ourselves back and away from those. Anyway. Yeah. I don't mean to start a new discussion as we're clearly wrapping things up, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, (laughs) um, It, it makes me, um, you talked about like connectedness and lack of connectedness. um, Mm -hmm. And it makes me think that um, much has been said about, um, young men in America being lonely and that leading to things in and around and like gun violence. And sometimes it's self gun violence as an, as I would say, as an example of like behavior, right. Not as like the only result. Um, and I think it's interesting that, um, so much of the conversation around fandom is about women and queer people and the way that, um, when we talk about sort of the opposite, right? Like the the disconnectedness, a lot of that conversation goes to men and violence. Mm. And I don't mean that to put any unnecessary weight on like men generally or anything like that, but more to say that like, it's interesting the way that our culture has pushed various people to different responses to 
disconnectedness, right? Yeah, I mean, Anita Sarkeesian didn't just, like, make up that a bunch of men came for her and the way that Uh she was expressing her understanding of different fandoms, right? right? Like, so, yeah. No, I think think that's right. And and that's so, I think, a a good note to end on and not starting a conversation at all. Um, I think a a good note to end on because it, it is very similar to the quote that I wanted to close this with from the book, which is online fandom can be progressive and it can also be reactionary. It can foster creativity and it can also smooth away individuality. It can create new tools and compel fascinating action just as easily as it can provide the dull repetitive skills required for activities like media manipulation and harassment. And that is... I think so indicative of what you were saying, right? And how we experience fandom can be so individualized, even mm-hmm. when it is around something that is so like that is intended to like kind of flatten us into being right. the same or experiencing things in the same way. I think what I love about that quote is it's Kate and Tiffany being like, and you're going to write that book, not me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you for talking to me about that book. And when I just like was like, Hey, I want to hear you talk about this. And you went for it. Listen, I could talk about this book for like about a bajillion more years. I put a lot of tabs and I got to like half of them. I didn't just want to like read you the chapters of this book. I appreciate that. Can you say the name again? Yes. Uh, Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It by Caitlin Tiffany. It is worth reading if you have ever been a fan of anything or if, like me, the thing that you're a fan of is the internet. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I think we did another one. I actually really liked this one a lot. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And sorry for talking about Harry Potter for 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. Do you have... Any more feelings about where or if people should find you on the internet? Oh, God. You can find me on the internet on Twitter still. I'm still there. Okay. I'm at matthorton.live. Um, I just put my Mastodon on there. Ooh. Um, I haven't started a Mastodon account yet, but I should. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at ACFACI. Letter A, letter C. F-A-C-C-I. There you go. There are no links for this show yet. Otherwise, I would tell you what you should do to follow this show. But if you're listening to it, that means there's a link to the show and you should subscribe and do things that you do for podcasts. And uh, I've already hinted a little bit about what I want to talk about next time. Um, I I will just going to stop programming to say that roughly our plan is to do these one every two weeks. um, And for you and I to trade back and forth on like who is sharing a topic to the other person. So last week... I did X-Men and Krakoa. This week you did this wonderful book by Caitlin and Tiffany. And I think two weeks from now, I want to talk about Star Wars and specifically Andor. Ooh. Because oh, I yes. watched I have to watch Andor it. several months ago at this point or whenever it came out and like still have not been able to stop thinking about it and what it means for Star Wars as a fandom even, but also mm. like what it means in sort of like the mythos of, you know, that world itself. So... Yeah. I think, Amazing. I think I'm going to rewatch that show and talk about um, it. Matt, I have a question for you. Yeah. How much, if any, have you watched of The Great Pottery Throwdown? None. Great. 
What if a month from now I talk about the Great Pottery Throwdown and the Americanization of British competition television? I am one million percent down for that. Amazing. Awesome. All right. Just making this note for myself so I'm a little bit more prepared for next time. Yeah, sounds good. Anyway, that's been this episode and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Amazing. Amazing.